And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we're needful of your word this morning. Uh, it attests to itself that it is life. And so, Lord, would you work life into us? Uh, Lord, would you apply the gospel to our hearts to the end that we might, uh, if our faith is in you, grow in you? Lord, to, to your glory and to the good of our neighbors. Uh, Lord, if we are here curious about these things, uh, Lord, would today be the day of salvation. Uh, so, Lord, uh, thank you for gathering us here this morning, uh, not to make demands of us, but to show us that all the demands have been met in Jesus Christ and that, that we might receive all the benefits to your glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're uh, well into January, and uh, you know, whatever else you may have gotten over the holidays, uh, many of us are reckoning with the fact that we got a few extra pounds. And you know, guess what? Uh, the clothing manufacturers know that too. And as we go shopping, the last thing they, wanna, they want us to be reminded of uh, is the deterioration and the ultimate demise of our bodies as we realize, you know, we're not quite as svelte as we once were. So, you know, in the last decade or so, the garment-making industry has actually implemented a practice that's kind of applied everywhere now known as vanity sizing. Uh, this is where uh, they basically, you know, not only to shield us from the trauma, but, but also to keep us shopping where they just relabeled the sizes. You know, so what was once a size 12 dress, you know, might be a size 6. And what was, what was once a size 38 pant waist, you know, is now a 32. And, and, you know, with just the change of just a few digits, right, they get us not only denying reality, but accepting an alternative reality. One that doesn't demand change, doesn't require any challenge, one where we're made to feel good about ourselves no matter what, right? Now, what the clothing manufacturers have been doing for the last 10 years, you know, I want to say in one way or another, human beings have been doing since Adam. You know, we are, we are about the business. We're always kind of regularly recalibrating reality, aren't we? We vanity size our sin to make it smaller, seem smaller than it actually is, and, and we kind of vanity size our virtue to make it seem larger than it actually is. But then you come to the gospel, and with it, you confront the truth, the truth fundamentally of who I really am and who the Lord really is, and you face reality, and, and you realize you, you're unable to recalibrate it to suit your taste, but you've got to reckon with it, you know, to quit, quit playing games. And in seeing that our sin is bigger and more deadly than we imagine, and that God is holier than we ever realized, and that grace is in fact sweeter and more available to us than we ever dreamed, you know, we not only meet reality, but then you are at the doorstep of redemption. You're, you're ready for it. And by God's grace, we're moved to repentance and receiving a life that we could never make for ourselves in Jesus Christ by faith through grace. Now, we're at the end of our series on the Beatitudes, and, and, you know, if you want to know what the Beatitudes are, they are a slow walk through the gospel. 
a progressive, comprehensive account of the effect of the good news of Jesus Christ on everyone who believes. That's what these are. And, and we've seen, you know, for all that's going on in this part of Jesus' sermon, fundamentally you see this profound truth that the gospel changes everything. Changes everything. There's no part of life that goes untouched by it. And nowhere, I think, is that change more potent, kind of more bracing than what we looked at last week in verse 10, where we saw that one of the results of faith in Jesus is persecution for his namesake. And, and that, you know, that's a bit of a shocker. I mean, the trajectory of these blessings, as we've been tracking with them, has gone from some, some tough stuff at the beginning, pretty trying you know, mourning, mourning our sin, poverty of spirit, um, to those things that feel kind of more rewarding. You know, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking. And then, you know, culminating, the cherry on top is record scratch persecution. And you just want to go, well, why don't we get happily ever after? So it's a head-scratcher, right? And it's a head-scratcher, I think, in, in more ways than one. First of all, Jesus speaks of persecution for righteousness' sake, um, not, as a, not as a possibility. He speaks of it as a certainty. It, it, it will be as much a part of following him as being made poor in spirit, mournful for sin, meek in heart, and all the rest. Jesus, in other words, doesn't say, you know, look, there's going to be a few of you, a subgroup of Christians in those, in those particularly challenging circumstances and parts of the world, you know, back east, uh, where you're, you're, those people have to suffer for their faith. No, persecution for righteousness' sake comes with following Jesus. Peter puts it another way uh, in his first letter when he tells the church that when, hey, when the fiery trials come, don't react to it as if something strange were happening to you. In other words, this isn't the anomaly, it's the norm. Norm of the Christian life. And, you know, but maybe an even bigger head scratcher is how the Beatitudes aren't, you know, seven blessings and a bummer, but all of it redounds to blessing. Um, Jesus is straightforward about this. He's straightforward about the reality of persecution, but here's something that's critical for us to see as well. He is not unfeeling about it, he is deeply sympathetic to this aspect of following him. Uh, he knows that this is hard to hear. He knows that this is, will be difficult for us to believe. Uh, he knows that this, for many of us, maybe right now this morning, is heavy to bear. And I suspect that is why at, this, at, at the end of the sermon, on this particular topic, he says more about it than he says about anything else. There's lots of commentary here. Uh, he sympathizes and spends a good time teaching us how to think about this, how to live in the light, in light of it. Uh, now, now, I don't know about you, but when the topic of persecution comes up, when I hear the things that I've just said, that, that this is a, not a possibility of my Christian walk, but a certainty about it, the next thing I want to know is, okay, what kind of persecution will I have to endure? Um, it's not so much the focus of Jesus here. He you know, certainly uh, there are many Christians who have had to suffer violence for their faith. Um, there have been more martyrs for the faith in the last hundred, in the last century than there were in the previous 19, okay? And yet, Jesus makes the point that it, it, 
It does. It comes in all shapes and sizes. He, he gives us some sense of that here. He says it'll come as revulsion, as persecution, uh, as all kinds of evil being uttered against you falsely for his sake. So, so it may be that your Christian, you know, the result of your Christian faith following Jesus could mean the loss of a job. Uh, it could mean the loss of friends, the loss of money, the loss of opportunities. Uh, it could fracture your family. Uh, you can become, you know, things can be going on you're not even aware of. You might be gossiped about, slandered. You might be the butt of a joke. But while the particular kind of persecution isn't the focus, what it looks like to be faithful in the face of persecution is, whatever it may be. And, and I just want to say, you know, we, we're badly in need of instruction when it comes to this because Lord knows when we're wronged, when we're slighted, few of us handle it very well, naturally speaking. You know, and, and I want to say probably the, the thing that's most common in, in responding to this kind of thing, these kinds of troubles, is revenge. We might not call it that, but, you know, the idea of like, you hurt me, well, I'm going to hurt you. You know, you, you denied me some opportunities, I'm going to make sure you're denied some opportunities. You gossip about me, I'm going to make sure your reputation takes a hit. You know, I'm going to take to social media, I'm going to create a little faction uh, over here, you know, against you, whatever it is, you know, to make you pay for the pound of flesh you've taken from me. And yet, you know, the Bible is full of commands prohibiting revenge, prohibiting reprisal. Uh, one of the most pithy ones is in Romans 12, where Paul says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, now you know, why are there so many commands on this? Well, one thing I, you know, one thing I want to say is, you know, what is not prohibited is a desire for justice. That's a good thing. If anything, we need more of that, more of a desire for justice. Uh, where it goes haywire and where it becomes sinful is then the idea that if there is to be justice, it must be meted out by me. I will be the one to make, make sure that things are set right. And that idea that it must be me uh, to make things right is really, when you, when you think about it, and when you look at this path we've walked through the Beatitudes, is a repudiation of everything we've learned in the gospel. It's a repudiation of the gospel that tells me, for starters, I'm not quite as righteous as I would like to imagine that I am. My judgment is very often flawed. I'm, I'm more sinful and I'm more self-righteous than, than I, would, I imagine myself to be. I'm more prone to harshness than I would like to believe. And, and critically, we also learn that the Lord is holy, that the Lord is righteous, that he is just, that he is sovereign, that he's not distant from my concerns, that he is active in working all things together for good to, to those whom, who, who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, grasping the gospel, when we see all that, when we learn the truth of who I am and the truth of who the Lord is, it has the effect, it must have the effect of relocating confidence away from the self and onto the Savior. So that when I'm wronged, by grace, I moved from the revenge impulse to the reliance impulse. That I'm putting my trust in the Lord. 
So revenge is an unfaithful response to persecution, but, but I also want to say so is reveling in persecution. You know, the idea that, you know, that I'm a martyr, highlighting my victimhood, amplifying my grievances, you know, um, as if suffering in and of itself was its own kind of righteousness. You know, you can see from this passage that persecution is actually lamentable. It's a terrible thing. It's grievous that it's a grievous reality that comes upon us because we live in a fallen world, and it, and it ought to break our heart. So, so Jesus urges rejoicing here. I'm going to say more about this in a minute, but the rejoicing is not at the fact of persecution itself. The rejoicing is at God's faithfulness in the face of persecution, God's faithfulness in suffering. Because after all, there is a theme of grievousness that runs through these verses. Uh, not only will revulsion and persecution and evil come our way, all those things being lamentable, deeply so, uh, but also they come on account of Jesus. And falsely at that. That's, that's lamentable. That's heartbreaking. And, and it is that way because our world is one that is, that is wounded and broken by the fall. You know, so that falsehood in all forms and with force will lash out at truth. Not all the time, but, but regularly and often. Not just in the abstract, but, but landing in our lives. So we don't revel in persecution as something to celebrate, but in fact, we pray against it. We did that earlier in the Lord's Prayer. Um, we pray against it. We look to the Lord to put things right. And, and I think that's why Jesus spends more time here kind of commending a faithful posture than he does, you know, recommending particular actions to take. Uh, you know, it's clear that he knows that we'll feel and experience these things quite intensely, but rather than, you know, dulling that or denying it and the pain that comes along with it, instead he directs us. He promises that faithful, faithfully enduring persecution re results not just in joy, but if you look at the language of verse 12, actually exceeding rejoicing. And, and I don't know about you, but, you know, I talked about the record scratch earlier of like, wow, this whole thing culminates in persecution, and as jolting as the assurance of suffering is, what's more jolting to me is the idea that rejoicing could be in any way connected to it. Like, how's that possible? Well, the first thing to remember is that the blessing on offer here is not different from the blessings attached to all the Beatitudes in this way, that none of it is, is something we gin up out of ourselves. None of it's produced out of us. All of it comes as a gift of grace from Jesus. This, in other words, is not a matter of, you know, having a good attitude uh, as important as that may be, or toughening up, or turning the frown upside down when, when you're suffering. Uh, rejoicing and being glad under these circumstances is something that we could never do apart from Jesus' work of grace applied to us. Rejoicing coming as a gift. And, and Jesus actually gets very specific about the nature of the gift uh, in these circumstances by telling us what he's already given and what he will yet give. So he points us to really four specific things I'm going to run through. First of all, who you're with in suffering. Secondly, to whom you belong as you suffer. Thirdly, what you receive 
in your suffering, and fourthly, where you're going. Um, he begins by saying Christians can rejoice in their suffering because they know who they're with. Uh, suffering for the gospel reminds you you're not alone. Uh, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus says, for great is your reward in heaven. And then he says this, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Je Jesus is, in other words, saying, you know, don't just admire the prophets. Know that you're in solidarity with them. You're in good company. Suffering for my sake means you're in league with me and you're with my people, both here and in heaven. And knowing that, knowing that you're experiencing what the prophets before you experienced for the same reason is to tell you, you are part of God's story. Um, you're part of his faithfulness to his people. You know, that story continues to be written. Just as God's grace worked in the lives of those people, weak and frail as they were, uh, he's at work in my life, weak and frail as I am. Prophets were persecuted for righteousness' sake, so, and we will be as well. They were given everything they needed, and so shall we. They lived by grace, and so shall we. They came into their reward, and so shall we. So we can rejoice because of who we're with. We can also rejoice in suffering because we know what we're getting. Um, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus says, for great is your reward in heaven. Uh, maybe the most comprehensive account of the prophets who came before you is in Hebrews 11. It's a passage that celebrates the faith of, of you know, too many people to mention here, but Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Samson, David, it goes on and on. And, and the question that I think kind of animates that particular part of the Bible is this, what was the secret of the godliness of those people? What was the secret of their faithfulness? You know, what sustained them and so many others through such trials and difficulties? And the answer simply is faith. We know that. But the writer of Hebrews expands on the nature of the faith. And, and, and he says, common to the faith of all of them was this, looking forward. He says they looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, um, we've all, many of us have heard that the number one rule of real estate is don't fall in love. Um, why that rule? Well, here's what real estate does for you. Here's what house hunting will do to you. Here's what it did to me. Um, it will turn an otherwise normal person into a crazy person. Because when you go house hunting, you know, you begin to project your life onto this place. And then, you know, you, you, you know all the hoops you have to go through. And you know there are people competing for it. And, you know, and will I get the loan in time? And can I, will they accept the price? And, you know, and all, all this stuff is going on. You know, because you fall in love and you, you imagine that, you know, you will possess the perfect place. And I, I, I don't know if there's realtors in here, but I'm sure you hear this phrase regularly, that, that I am going to secure my forever home. And, I, and, 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 and that's the key to my happiness. And if I don't get it, I go crazy. There are people all over the world right now making living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, their life's aim. That someday, somehow, 
by hook or by crook, they will one day make their home here. And, and you know, I, you will be hard-pressed, in my humble opinion, to find a more beautiful place in the world than Santa Fe, to find more on offer than what this city has on offer in terms of its natural beauty, its culture, its food, its climate, its pastors. And all of that. But, but please hear me. This is not your forever home. Uh, this is not the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's not the better heavenly country. It gives us some beautiful glimpses of that, but it is not that. The great Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, maybe the last Puritan, preached a sermon on Hebrews 11. And he explained and expounded on faithfulness in terms that the Bible gives us, that we are travelers. We're pilgrims in this life. We are passing through. And he puts it this way. He says, a traveler is not wont to rest in what he meets with, however comfortable and pleasing on the road. If he passes through pleasant places, flowery meadows, or shady groves, he does not take up his content in these things, but only takes a transient view of them as he goes along. He is not enticed by fine appearances to put off the thought of proceeding. No, but his journey's end is in his mind. If he meets with comfortable accommodations at an inn, he entertains no thoughts of settling there. He considers that these things are not his own, but that he is but a stranger. And when he has refreshed himself or tarried for a night, he is going forward. And it is pleasant to him to think that so much of the way is gone. Suffering in this life, persecution in this life, God allows it to awaken us and remind us of the reality that we are not in our forever home that this is not the ultimate, that there are, in fact, better things, much better, infinitely better things ahead. He gives us the gift of not getting too cozy with the things as they are, moving us to a longing for the perfect city, whose, founder and, whose foundation and builder is God. So, so belonging to Jesus, following Jesus, has a, has a bearing built into it. There is a compass setting, and the coordinates are toward heaven. So, so that we, we make a start on the life to come here and now. And there's some important implications that come with a, a Christian hoping in heaven. The first of which is that this world doesn't own you. Everything can be taken from us, even, even my life. And yet, in the end, nothing's been taken at all. Not ultimately. This is how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And look, it's not escapism to hope in heaven. Jesus encourages it. It is good, God-glorifying, God edifying activity to ponder heaven in this life. And in this life, to enjoy the gifts that we have in this life as, as little tiny tastes for the greater glory to come. 
Even as we lament the brokenness, as we long for Jesus' return to take, him to take us to himself, even as we're reminded that our life and activity here is, is deeply meaningful, so much so that it extends beyond this life and into the life to come. So longing for heaven is good. Longing to see others there, those whom we have lost. Longing to see more of Jesus here that we might be sustained in him as part of the joy on offer when we suffer. But again, you might wonder, well, isn't it really in the end escapism? Isn't, aren't you over-spiritualizing things? Aren't you running from the real problems? But again, I just want to commend you to look at what Jesus says here. This, this passage is the furthest thing in the Bible from escapism. You know, he's just assured us that we're going to suffer. He's also assured us that the suffer, suffering actually is meaningful. It has meaning. And he's at work to awaken us to that reality that, that there is a better place, a place where there will be no more suffering. And the Lord is gathering up people now to go there to be with him, and we're going to be there too. And look, I, I realize it's very likely that there are those among us here who aren't Christians. Um, who, you know, and, and as I talk about heaven and a lot of these categories, you know, you, you may not relate to that. And that's okay. Uh, but but I, I want to ask you, especially if you don't share the Christian faith, you know, isn't it worth contemplating why we experience pain and suffering and all these troubles as an anomaly, as grievous, as, as in some way and to some degree wrong. In other words, you know, put it another way, why don't we just experience this stuff as, as a fish experiences water? You know, it's just part of the environment. It's just that which we live and move and have our being in, right? Well, it seems to me that we experience it in this way because it was never supposed to be this way. Uh, and and deep in the, in the human operating system, deep in the heart, whether, whether you can articulate it or whether you carry it as kind of an ache, our souls know that we're not all we should be and things are not the way they are supposed to be and we're made for better things. We are all homesick for a place we've never been. And because your heart and mine were made for those bigger things, for a life bigger than ourselves, for a place in which there is no sin and suffering and sorrow. We were, we were constructed to find our life in God and with God. So, so we all carry that around. We carry around a hope for heaven, a restlessness for our heart to find its home, and, and suffering is that thing that awakens us to that. That it's, it's not just the reality in which we live and move and have our being, but it is a jolt to the system that there is something deeply wrong. The first president of Princeton Theological Seminary, Archibald Alexander, kind of zeroed in on this to, a to one of the first graduating classes of seminarians to, gra uh, to uh, graduate from that institution. And he, and, he, and he said this, he said to these ministers, he said, pray, uh, pray not so much that your suffering would be removed as it would be sanctified. Don't pray that it would be removed so much as you would pray it would be sanctified. That's a good prayer. That's a righteous aim that, that instead of denying reality or trying to wriggle out of it, that we might faithfully reckon with it in terms of the gospel 
that he would produce holiness in us. Jesus wants us to think on these things and to think, I think, quite deeply about them. In fact, you know, Paul, at the end of his uh, first letter to the Thessalonians, tells the whole church, you know, make it habit to encourage one another in these things. Kind of get it into the conversation. You know, build one another up in the hope of the resurrection, in the hope of heaven, in the hope of rewards. And in fact, that's where Jesus goes, that we might rejoice in that hope of reward, getting us thinking not only about heaven, but what heaven, what heaven has in store for us. And, and, and look, he's speaking from personal experience. Jesus was a person who lived his life in hope of reward. The writer of Hebrews tells us not only that, that Jesus endured the agony of the cross and its shame, but he also goes further to say why he did, and the reason he did was for the joy set before him. Paul lived in the hope of reward, arguing that the kind of foundation we build here, whether it's a precious metal or wood or straw or hay, would be revealed in the last day. That life lived for Jesus, worked out for his glory, endures beyond this life. It matters. It's lasting and eternal. And Jesus says there is a reward. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we will one day appear before the judgment of seed of Christ that everyone may receive the things done, whether good or bad. There's a story about C.S. Lewis being in a conversation with somebody talking about these things, the hope of heaven, the hope of reward, and, and uh, a friend of his dismissed him and he said, it's just a bunch of pie in the sky. To which Lewis said, well, look, man, there's either pie in the sky or there isn't. There is. But then you have to ask the question, doesn't being motivated by reward undermine the idea of grace? Aren't the rewards the stuff of performance and merit? And in a sense, yes, they are, only not our performance and merit, the performance and merit of Jesus Christ imputed to us. And so, um, you know, reward grows out of God's abundant grace. You know, no one merits salvation, no one sanctifies themselves, so the rewards awaiting God's people are the definition of grace upon grace. There are things the Lord wants his children to do for his glory while we're here, being at work in his people, enabling them to do those things, motivating us in the knowledge that there will be even more joy than we can imagine as we follow him and do his will and delight in his will and endure all kinds of troubles for his namesake. So even, you know, we don't know exactly what the rewards will be apart from this life, uh, apart from life with him, which is definitively the great reward, but it's clear that no one will be without. There will be, in some mysterious way, rewards which are not all the same. And I want to go, you know, as I looked at this in the Bible this week, I want, you know, I just had the thought, you know, maybe it lacks specificity in terms of what the actual rewards are because human language and comprehension are simply inadequate to apprehend the greatness of the rewards. So he gives us little glimpses. He gives us a taste of what it will mean to be with Jesus and his people, to see him as he is with unveiled faces, to worship him, to be in bodies that are no longer subject to decay, but are somehow changed and glorified, to be in the presence of unalloyed joy, no tears, no groaning, no sighing, with those who have gone before us who we miss. So even as there's no way to fully comprehend the greatness of the rewards that await, we know definitively to whom those rewards belong. 
They belong to Jesus' people because of Jesus' grace. And we we receive assurance in this life when we suffer, knowing that we're not only in the company of the prophets that came before us, but that we are in the company of Jesus, who is with us to the very end of the age. So that when suffering comes, we know that we're being treated as he was. We are identified with him. We can be assured that in the suffering, we've been made something entirely different than what we were before. And we can experience the reality in this life that the old has died and, 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 the, and it's being replaced by the new nature with new capacities and new affections and new desires and, and, and an ability to, to suffer maybe more greatly than we could before and also to love greater than we could before, which I think is going to be a great requirement of Christians in the next century. Suffer more and love more. Loving Jesus. Loving the things he loves as we become more like him. And look, I know many of us are, you know, this, is not the, this isn't a Bible study for you this morning. This is not the theoretical stuff. Um, you're suffering right now. Uh, some of us are suffering to such a great degree, it is more than we feel that we can bear. And that one of the mighty struggles of this life, I want to say, is believing that the suffering you are enduring right now has any meaning. And that there might be any way in which the Lord might be working good through it. Uh, there are times in which we, can, we simply cannot conceive that Jesus is loving me right now. And, and, and this is the part of our experience in this life that I want to say uh, will be the very first thing that the devil goes after. He will be right there to whisper in your ear. He will be right there to remind you of all the ways in which you feel that you failed. He will be right there to try to convince you that Jesus has had it with you, that he has abandoned you, or worse, that he is punishing you. That stuff is very easy for us to believe, I think. A writer, a favorite writer of mine said, it is an item of faith that we are children of God. And guess what? There is plenty of experience in us against it. We often feel like an orphan. And yet, our suffering is the deepest and most abiding indication of our connection with Jesus, his love for you to the very end of how he causes life to spring up where it seems like there's only death. And and we know that because this is not only our experience, it was his as well, to a much greater degree, to a cosmic degree. He suffered in this world, and so shall we. He went to the cross, enduring its shame for the joy set before him. And to follow him is to walk that way of the cross, enduring the pain and the shame. But because he's gone before us, and critically for us, we know that there is joy ahead. We will be misunderstood, mocked, and maligned, and so was he. In him, we'll come to know the comfort and joy of finding that our life is made for greater things than this life and beyond this life. We'll we'll know our life now is is not just, you know, one other, you know, person being tossed on a raging sea of randomness, but it's got a purpose, even though we see it dimly right now. In the 19th verse of Psalm 78, the psalmist, Asaph in this case, records a little bit of um, mockery that was directed towards God's people. 
that came in the form of what I'm sure they imagined was a rhetorical question. That is to say, a question that's kind of its own answer. Uh, you know, and the question is this. Can God set a table in the wilderness? This, of course, was a reference to the Exodus, to, you know, a liberation that didn't look like a great liberation. <laughs> like, isn't life in the wilderness proof enough that God doesn't love you, that he's abandoned your cause, and that rather than providing for you, he's actually punishing you? And yet it's not a rhetorical question. The, the psalmist kind of celebrates it, in fact. He, he says that question has an answer. And the answer to whether or not God can set a table in the wilderness is yes. He spreads before us a feast even in the wilds of life. He has always done that for his people, and he does it here week in and week out at this table where we're reminded and refreshed in the truth that he has freed us from the failed task of producing a life for ourselves, but provides for us, feeding us here, where he's present, where he assures us that we are fed in this life for the life to come, where he blesses us in the midst of a life that at times, and maybe right now, is a wilderness. And he's faithful to do that because our Lord Jesus endured the ultimate in persecution, the ultimate in revulsion, the ultimate in suffering evil for us and our redemption. He took all the wrath, all the rejection that we deserved, not merely from other people, but all of God's wrath towards sin that should have landed on us. All that we might receive redemption and with it rejoicing. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do thank you uh, that you were faithful week in and week out to bring us to the table, to set for us a table in the wilderness. Jesus, you're that table. Um, though the world might mock, though it might present to us what it imagines to be the rhetorical question, which is its own answer, which is how could God be with you and tend to you and feed you and care for you in all of the wreckage that is your life and our answer to that is we have a Redeemer who plunged himself into death, who took the brunt, the fullness of all the damage that, that, that snipes at us in this life but doesn't undo us for the life to come. Because Jesus, you affected for us salvation. You took it all. You bore all of this in its ultimacy that we might pass through that we would be taken through the raging waters of this life safe to the other side. Thank you for this table. Lord, meet us here. Would you feed us here? Would you remind us in a new, embracing, and jolting, and visceral way that, Jesus, you are our life and that you are preparing us for the life to come with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.